This episode of Batch is supported by Southern Environmental Law Center. Solutions to our toughest environmental challenges start in the South. Learn more about how SELC makes a difference across our region and beyond at southernenvironment.org. Hi there, this is Kyle Tibbs-Jones, and this is Batch, a Bitter Southerner podcast where we have our favorites read some favorites. And by that, I mean we have some of our favorite writers read their Bitter Southerner stories, the stories you all love. Today, we're excited to launch our second batch, a batch we're calling Earth Stories. Over the course of the next five episodes, we're digging into some fragile and precious places across the American South. These stories are so, so good. And gosh, we are over the moon to get started with the one and only Janice Ray, an acclaimed author and environmental activist whose memoir, Ecology of a Cracker Childhood, won the American Book Award. And that's just the tip of the iceberg with this incredible woman. Since then, there have been many books and many awards. A true shero to environmentalists and literary circles everywhere, I am so blown away to be in the studio with her today. Janice Ray, I cannot believe you're on Batch Podcast. This is like I have who? I don't know, Beyonce? I don't know, the president. I I just can't believe you're on the podcast. I'll be Beyonce any day. (laughs) I'm so glad to be here. I mean, I'm just, I'm sorry to everyone listening. Kyle's like nerding out, fangirling out. But um, I cannot um, thank you enough for coming into the studio today. For everyone listening, we usually record these from far away because everyone lives, you know, all over the place. All of our writers are all over but Janice and I were happened to be able to be in Atlanta at the same time. Um, Ryan's here. Anyway, so we get to see each other and, and record together. It's going to be really fun. It's going to be great. So the story is part of our, it's a partner story with the SELC, the Southern Environmental Law Center. And it's about the Okefenokee. Janice, that's like your heart and soul. Right. I'm from southern Georgia. I call it the south of Georgia because that sounds like the south of France. and That's very elegant. Elevates it a little bit (laughs) for people. But yes, I I am a native to the south of Georgia, and I continue to live there Mm -hmm. on an organic farm in Tattnall County in a historic community called Altamahal, Georgia, historically called Altamahal, which is pretty much near the confluence of the Altamahal and Ohupi Rivers. Right. So it's a it's an hour and a half or so south to the Okefenokee, but it's Okefenokee is still, you know, my heart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you'll see when Janice starts to read this beautiful story that the Okefenokee is in danger. So are you ready to read this story? I am. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Janice Ray, and I'm reading Okefenokee, Heavy and Precious. When in early 2019, I caught rumblings that a company wanted to mine on the doorstep of Okefenokee Swamp, 
I pretended not to hear. Having to fight all the time to protect things you love will wear a person out. It will take years off your life. And I was given the burden of loving a place that people are always chasing. This place is always running, fleeing down a dirt road as fast as she can go, scared out of her mind. They want her trees. They want her fertile soil. They want her deer. They want her golden coast. They want her rivers. If you don't know the Okefenokee, it's a gigantic, ethereal, God-touched swamp in southeast Georgia that's like no other place on earth. It's a world wonder, nearly 700 square miles of labyrinthine wildness, the largest blackwater swamp in North America and the largest wilderness area in the eastern U.S. This wild botanical garden serves as a haven for alligators and black bears, woodpeckers and ibises, bitterns and cranes. The Okefenokee once lay underneath the Atlantic Ocean. Swirling currents formed humps of land, which are now islands, hardwood hammocks, in the swamp. After the ocean receded, rainwater dissolved a limestone bedrock, leaving a large depression. This bowl in the earth was lined with an impermeable layer of clay, which began to hold water and fill the bowl with layers of peat. The peat soil found today has aged for 6,000 years. Thus, the Okefenokee Swamp was born. The company I'm talking about doesn't actually want the swamp. It wants the titanium dioxide, a white mineral used in manufacturing, below it. To the east of the swamp runs a 130-mile spine of barrier island that existed when the ocean was higher during the Pleistocene. This is called Trail Ridge. Sometimes people refer to it as a terrace, but often the spine of Trail Ridge is level with its surroundings. Hundreds of acres of Trail Ridge are actually wetlands. Here, titanium dioxide can be found underneath the swamps and marshes of Trail Ridge in an ancient sand dune. Within Trail Ridge itself are natural clay layers that form basins, and the swamp communicates with the wetlands and basins of Trail Ridge via numerous streams. I was born in the coastal plains of Georgia near the swamp. I became an environmentalist, then a nature writer. Most of my life I've spent championing the glorious but beleaguered landscapes of my native territory. I first visited the swamp when I was a kid on a school field trip. I've paddled it many times since then. I've crossed it twice by kayak, 31 miles east to west of bellowing alligators, titanium white water lilies, and wading birds. If anything will knock you to your knees, it's the gray and scarlet perfection of sandhill cranes. 
Once I went in with ecologist and executive director of the Coastal Plains Institute, Bruce Means, my most memorable visit to date. Means had us crawling in tunnels made by bears through Tai Tai and Fetter Bush. He knew where to find the nest of the round-tailed water rat, which lives on a grass platform above the water, under a grass roof. He identified prothonotary warblers flying like the moons of Jupiter above the obsidian channels. No matter what I am doing, some part of my mind is wandering in the Okefenokee. Twin Pines, a mineral company out of Alabama, wants to destroy hundreds of acres of wetlands next to the Okefenokee for titanium dioxide. Just the first phase of its project would obliterate 600 acres. Twin Pines will tell you the U.S. needs titanium for military smoke grenades and for solar panels, but mostly the mineral goes into paint. It's sold in pigments labeled brilliant white, or the whitest white. It's also used for whiteness and opacity in toothpaste, sunscreen, cosmetics, food coloring, plastics, and paper. We bring it home from the supermarket in ice cream, candy, creamers, marshmallows, pastries, cake spreads, dressings, and chewing gum. A league of Georgians, me included, fought this very fight back in the late 1990s. Then it was DuPont that wanted the titanium. That campaign, almost three decades ago, meant a bunch of meetings, letters, a film, establishment of an ecotourism association, promises, and more promises. We Georgians protested DuPont's plans until DuPont retired its mineral rights and donated the 16,000 acres planned for its mine to the refuge. That saved the Okefenokee, but it didn't change the economic outlook. The counties touching the swamp are still drowning in poverty. Why is it that the most resource-rich places are the poorest Here is a disadvantaged rural place, and a corporation sweeps in, promising jobs. Trees will get cut, wetlands will be drained, great growly machines will dig far down into the earth, grabbing bucketfuls of white sand that used to be the bottom of the ocean and filling dump trucks with it. The pit will widen and deepen, Mining will rip apart and destroy the clay layers and water-filled basins of Trail Ridge, as well as end the centuries-long conversation between the Okefenokee and its surrounding wetlands. As long as Trail Ridge is not permanently protected, as long as people want white paint and white toothpaste and white sunscreen and white doughnuts, the Okefenokee will be at risk. But the promise of prosperity, 
however vague or uncertain it might be, is what ultimately moved the county commissioners of Charlton, a county abutting the swamp, to sign a resolution in favor of the Twin Pines Mine. I spoke with Jesse Cruz, a retired high school basketball coach and long-term commissioner from St. George, Georgia, who represents the district where the mining would happen. Rather, I tried. I'm not going to speak on that, he said. I want to speak with someone in favor of the mine, I said. I need to understand that position. The county is not in support of anything, Cruz said. We never said we were in support of the mine. We said we were in support of the mine company seeking the permits it needs. I tried to press him, but he said I was asking too many questions, and he hung up. Later that afternoon, County Administrator Hampton Rollerson forwarded me a copy of the resolution. It details how the mine would bring in 150 jobs and yearly tax revenue, resulting in economic development beneficial to the county and allowing Charlton to increase the levels of services it provides. In response, the Board of Commissioners, quote, hereby proclaims and expresses support of Twin Pines Minerals, LLC, proposed heavy mineral sand mining. I would think that any business bringing that many jobs would mean economic development, Rollerson told me, in terms of people moving into the area, more homeowners using businesses in the area, more children in the schools. Yet on the street, nobody in Folkestone, the county seat of Charlton, speaks up in favor of the mine. I haven't run into anyone who will stand on a hill and be for it, Rollerson said. Why? I asked. I don't know why, he said. I think I know why. The people of Okefenokee are in a double bind. They want good jobs, but they love the swamp. They're proud of it. They love fishing in it. Their people lived in it before it became a wildlife refuge. It's their home. They're swamp people. I spoke with the Reverend Antoine Nixon at length about this. Born and raised in Folkestone in the 80s, he visited the swamp many times as a child. Alligators especially thrilled him. So when I found out what was going on with the mine, he said, I was very passionate about it. Reverend Nixon knows what it's like to live in a place where jobs are scarce. Nixon is a kind-eyed man in his 40s with a manicured beard. He pastors at Mount Carmel Baptist, although by trade he's an electrician, and to secure a decent income for his family, he drives to Jacksonville to work 50 miles each way, leaving home at 3.30 a.m., I know plenty of people who do that, he said. My mom makes that same drive. My dad works at Kings Bay. We've been driving out of town as long as I can remember. Nixon continued, One of the easiest things to do to fool people is to promise them jobs and money. But at what expense are you willing to sell out? 
I mean, that money's going to run out, but you destroy the swamp. We can never get that back. So you have to have some background information and moralism to say no to the money. This story presents as a classic David and Goliath tale, a large corporation acting as Goliath. The Okefenokee, a swamp with all the oozing malarial metaphors of Swamplandia in rural South Georgia where brain drain is no joke, would seem to be David, a little guy loading his slingshot with a pebble. But this story is reversed. Here, the mining company is David, and it has come up against not just a single giant, but one with many heads, a hydra. First, there's the swamp itself, a kind of bottomless, endless place with more than 600 species of wild plants, 200 species of birds, 100 of amphibians and reptiles, 35 of fish, and so on. Add to that everybody who's ever paddled through the mercurial, lily-thick waters of this dreamy, glittery place. Every school kid, every tourist, every traveler to antique lands, people who forever after are haunted by the primeval beauty and mystery. The place imprints on their brains, and for all their lives, they who have seen it dream about this fecundity. They dream about its sandhill cranes, alligators, bass, meadows of pitcher plants, towering cypress. A mining company pales next to a thing that can inhabit your mind like a demon. How bold the miners. They thought they could catch the old swamp sleeping. It activated the dreamers. Rick Middleton, native of Birmingham, started the Southern Environmental Law Center, SELC, in 1986. An attorney who cared about the environment He was gobsmacked by how national environmental organizations regularly ignored iconic southern landscapes like the Appalachian Mountains, the Outer Banks, or the Altamaha Bioreserve. Now, 90 lawyers and a total staff of 170 work in nine offices in six southern states and in Washington, D.C., sowing the legal suturing to protect Southern nature. Bill Sapp, a tall, thin, clean-shaven man with piercing eyes, is one of SELC's senior attorneys. When he heard about Twin Pines' applications for permits to mine titanium, he was alarmed. He reached out to environmental groups and invited them to the swamp for a meeting. At that event, they voted to form a coalition the Okefenokee Protection Alliance, OPA. The coalition has been incredibly successful, Sapp told me, not only in what we've been able to accomplish together, but also in working together smoothly and tapping into the talents of every group involved. Forty member organizations boast more than five million members. In the permitting processes, Sapp told me, 
comments poured in from more than 100,000 people. That is just unheard of. They were from 50 states and 36 countries. It was Kelly Moser, a dark-haired woman with warm blue eyes and SAP's colleague at SELC, who explained to me how the Trump administration put the Okefenokee at risk. The Okefenokee Swamp itself is a pristine wetland, she said. But there are wetlands outside the refuge boundaries that are critical to the swamp's hydrology and health. Those peripheral wetlands, even on private property, have been consistently protected under the Clean Water Act despite changing administrations or what party finds itself in power. So when Twin Pines wanted to harvest titanium dioxide from the Okefenokee's doorstep, they had to ask the Army Corps of Engineers for permission, which they did in 2018. The Army Corps said no, these wetlands fall within the scope of the Clean Water Act, and they are protected. In late 2020, however, the Trump administration passed a rule that narrowed the definition of waters with federal protection. Overnight, millions of acres of wetlands across the country lost protection. On the very day that the revised rule was published in the Federal Register, Twin Pines returned to the Army Corps and asked for a redo. They hit pay dirt. The Army Corps reversed course, saying it now had no jurisdiction in the matter. Twin Pines began to position earth-moving equipment on the mining site near the mineral-rich wetlands around the Okefenokee. Then, in this roller coaster of a ride, things changed again. Suddenly, this past June, the Army Corps halted the mine. The Biden administration had been tightening environmental regulations and requiring robust consideration of Native Americans in federal matters. Deb Holland the first Native American cabinet secretary, was heading the Department of the Interior. Senator John Ossoff, a Democrat elected to the Senate in 2021 at the age of 33, had begun lobbying for the swamp, too. It turns out that the Muscogee Creek Nation had not been consulted in the Army Corps' decision to allow mining, and that was a mistake. The Muscogee Creek although now headquartered in Oklahoma, hold deep ties to the southeastern U.S., their place of origin. The proposed Okmulgee National Park, for example, a project keenly important to the Muscogee Creek, was the place where we first sat down. Raylan Butler, citizen of the nation and its manager for historic and cultural preservation, described long-standing ties between the nation and the Okefenokee. We are very active in the protection of sacred lands, cultural sites, and our homelands, said Butler. Of the swamp, she said, this is thought to have been one of the most blissful places on earth to the Muscogee people. The nation is working on a traditional cultural property designation for the Okefenokee. Marion McCormick, principal chief of the Lower Muscogee Creek, 
pointed out that the area to be mined contains native burial grounds. McCormick said, The Creek Indians and the Muscogee are connected to the land by the bones of our ancestors, and we don't want them to be disturbed. The mine was halted. We were elated, Moser said. Then Twin Pines sued the Corps to challenge its decision to reinstate protections for the Okefenokee wetlands. In August, in another quick turn of events, Without explanation or justification, the Corps settled the Twin Pines lawsuit. As Moser put it, the Corps rolled over to appease Twin Pines, again without consulting the Muscogee Creek Nation, saying only that the federal government would not stand in the way of the mine. Now that the Corps has reversed its decision, the Georgia Environmental Protection Division has reinitiated its permitting process. They're taking the environmental impacts of the mine very seriously, Moser told me. If Twin Pines wants to pursue mining at the site, it has to secure four state permits. It has to show that the mine is not going to hurt the swamp, and Twin Pines has not even come close to doing that. As well, the mining company must still comply with the Clean Water Act, and if it moves forward without a permit, it opens itself to citizen enforcement. Now we add to the Goliath fighting for the Okefenokee, the powerhouse of the Southern Environmental Law Center, the OPA Coalition, the Muscogee Creek Nation, plus 100,000 people willing to write letters. That group is gigantic, titanic, colossal, Brobdingnagian. But it's not even the entire Allied forces working to save the Okefenokee. When Twin Pines bulldozed into the scene in 2018, a lot of people realized that we need a bigger plan to protect Trail Ridge. The titanium is still down there, and we're still using toothpaste. The Okefenokee Swamp deserves permanent protection, which could happen in a number of ways. Pass a state law that forbids mining Trail Ridge, put conservation easements on those lands, or make them public lands through purchases. But there's another way, and that would be to make the Okefenokee Swamp so iconic, so globally recognized as the jewel it is, and so lucrative that no one would consider anything as destructive as a mine. In steps Kim Bednarik, a woman with a big plan. She reminds me of a rose pagonia one of the plants growing at the swamp edge. Maybe that's because she's tall and slender, wearing a rose-colored shirt printed with botanicals. You're listening to Janice Ray read her story, The Okefenokee, Heavy and Precious. Don't move a muscle. We'll be right back. 
Batch is supported by Southern Environmental Law Center, one of the nation's most powerful environmental defenders rooted right here in the South. As lawyers, policy and issue experts, and community advocates and partners, SELC takes on the toughest environmental challenges. They're the muscle and the heart behind landmark environmental victories, securing clean water and air protections for communities, stopping offshore drilling, and forcing the removal of over a quarter of a billion tons of toxic coal ash. Solutions start in the South. To learn more about how SELC makes a difference, visit southernenvironment.org. Let's get back to this inspiring story. This is Janice Ray. A couple of years ago, Okefenokee Swamp Park, OSP, an attraction near Waycross, hired Bednarik to be its first executive director in more than 50 years. At the time, Bednarik was directing a Montessori school in Jacksonville where she had been wildly successful. Huge increases in revenue, increases in student numbers, large construction projects. OSP needed a new vision. When she first took the job, at the height of the pandemic, Bednarik began a listening tour, as she called it, to understand the needs and potentials of the region. Soon after she arrived, a concession supplying boat tours, canoe rentals, guides, and merchandise to visitors at the swamp's Folkestone entrance came up for bid. Chip and Joy Campbell had run the concession for two decades, and they were ready to step back. OSP won the bid and bought the Campbell's business. Now, Bednarik had to think bigger than one park— She had to think of the swamp as a whole. She and I met at the Folkestone entrance in an air-conditioned room in the visitor center. I want to hear your vision, I said. It's not my vision, she said. It's a vision. It's a vision that invites engagement by stakeholders in a planning process. She continued, it can't belong to a person, a city, or a county, it has to belong to a region. We're in the process of creating something that could be catalytic, she said, to repurpose the swamp as a driver for a conservation economy, not as an extractive resource. It's a tall order. As Bednarik is quick to admit, the needs in the region are profound. Right now, these communities are in decay, disrepair, and dysfunction, she said. I asked her to elaborate, although I knew the answer. I live it. There's poverty, a true lack of resources. There's little connectivity, no broadband. There's little, if any, strategic planning, a lack of collaboration. The downtowns are dotted with boarded-up buildings. COVID rates are high. State and national politicians ignore the region because the vote's not there. Atlanta's not paying attention. In real terms, this means things like the city of Folkestone has no hospital. Folkestone's missing a chamber of commerce director. 
Waycross doesn't have a city manager or a director for its development authority. Why was it allowed to get this way? Bednarik asked rhetorically. You think it was intentional? I asked. Maybe, she said. Why? To take the resources? She paused. That's dark, I know. I'm sorry. It's my home. And I'm so angry. Yeah, we can take a little break. To take the resources? She paused. That's dark. I know. To think that a place could be allowed to sink into dysfunction, to make it easier to colonize, is, I agree, a dark thought, albeit one worth considering. Bednarik plans to curate a world-class experience at Okefenokee that is both inviting and authentic. It will be called Okefenokee Experience, modeled after the Adirondack Experience, a cultural center that celebrates the nature and culture of the Adirondack Mountains in western New York. And it will bring a new interpretive center, a cultural history museum, and Dark Skies Observatory to the Tri-County area surrounding the swamp. Bednarik is helping to get the Okefenokee recognized as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. To that end, Bednarik spends most of the hours of the day casting a vision, catalyzing investment, and building a constituency. We're going to continue to share the vision and message in a way that's relatable, she said. We're going to get out of the mindset of fear and scarcity and transition to one of abundance. Not competition, but collaboration. The more we collaborate locally, the more our voice becomes one. People who make decisions can hear us. I see a Brevard, an Asheville, a Boulder. Let's do that. She continued, the solution isn't to do the thing you've been doing the last 50 years, she said. I choose not to stay small. There are local people who don't want their towns to become tourism-driven, like Hilton Head or Fernandina. We have enough traffic, one restaurant owner told me. I love my small town. And what do you think of the mine, I ask her. What about jobs? She tells me she's opposed to the mine and didn't believe it would create as many jobs as the company promised. Instead, it would do irreversible damage. The mine's going to destroy, is what she said. The hydra-headed Goliath doesn't rest. Bednarik is working to make the Okefenokee a world-class destination. SCLC's cadre of lawyers is figuring their next move. Petitions are being circulated. People are signing them. Moser is watching a case that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear this fall, Sackett versus EPA. The EPA, 
under the aegis of the Clean Water Act, reprimanded the Sackett family for placing field dirt on their property in Bonner County, Idaho, that was destroying wetlands and polluting nearby Priest Lake. The case is a potential threat not only to the swamp, but to waters across the country, because the Supreme Court is weighing in on what the phrase waters of the U.S. means. If opponents of clean water in this case get what they are asking for, Moser said, that ruling would eliminate long-standing protections that we have enjoyed for the last 50 years and ignore how water bodies like the wetlands adjacent to the Okefenokee affect the health of other water bodies. Meanwhile, the climate crisis is putting pressure on water. Some places will suffer more than others. Some places will burn because of lack of it. Others will become deserts. A few will get too much rain. Others, not enough. Georgia and Florida are already feeling the pressures of changing water patterns. Reverend Nixon told me in one of our many conversations, I think that probably my role, as I see it developing, is being a key figure to get community involvement. To say, hey, you know, it's time for us to stand up for ourselves. Helping people stand up for themselves is the theme of all his work. He quotes Isaiah 9-2, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Nixon helps young people in his community get streamlined, as he calls it. We work with them to have a goal, to have a focus, to find something that they can get passionate about which will ultimately make them better citizens, he said. He helps people who've suffered oppression. In his words, transition to a new mindset. He organizes community days to feed people, pass out backpacks full of school supplies, and preach the gospel. One day at lunch break, at his electrician job, Nixon decided to sit under a tree at work and eat his bowl of fruit. There, in the shade, he heard something. Later, his co-workers said, Man, I saw you sleeping up under that tree. But he wasn't sleeping. He was listening to the tree. The tree was God, offering a revelation to Nixon to take his church outside. He said, I literally said, man, this tree is talking to me. I mean, he's everywhere, and he's speaking to all of us at all times. He continued, I think as human beings, we have to stop and pay attention and listen to what he's saying. For me, this movement was so that I could get more involved in what's actually happening in my own neck of the woods and be a voice of the clergy that might overlook this because it's not what we would consider church-related. He continued, Going outside gave me an opportunity to get outside the confines of the church as far as what we would call church business and get into the business of the church, which is whatever God has supposed it to be. 
once a season, Nixon brings his entire church outside to be closer to nature and to the people and what he calls church outside the walls. He sets up under a shelter in a park in Folkestone. He brings the choir, the drums, the keyboard, the hand fans. Nixon invited me to church outside the walls on a hot day in July. He had a white t-shirt waiting, depicting flames coming out of a sanctuary. The lettering said, Church on Fire. The service was so inspiring, moving, and beautiful that I forgot about the heat. Nixon stayed busy, unloading the drums, greeting people, running off to bring children back in the church van. Then the choir members sang and danced jubilantly, throwing their arms to the sky. When the preaching started, Nixon called five school-age boys to the front who had just returned from a D.C. trip with him. They got to walk through the halls of the White House, he told the congregation, to wild applause. Then the message of Nixon's sermon was, when God co-signs, it's a wrap. You can book it. Now, the Okefenokee's defenders become even more visible. Church on fire, lawyers on fire, Moser on fire, Bednarik on fire, OPA on fire, Ossoff on fire, the Muscogee Creek Nation on fire, people on fire. Of everybody I met, I asked this question, with the swamp threatened, what do we need from people? The Okefenokee needs you to be on fire. A good way to do that is to visit, to book a trip, to show up at one of the three entrances and buy a ticket for a boat ride. My suggestion, make a reservation to cross from one side to the other. A good three days of paddling through peat batteries full of wildflowers. Sleeping on a platform above tannic water. Listening to barred owls and alligators. Looking up into the dark sky that sparkles with an unfathomable number of crystalline stars. You will dream as if possessed. You will never forget it. You'll hear the swamp calling that it needs you. You, on fire for this singular, splashy, spirit-filled place. Janice, that is, that's quite beautiful. I think we both got teared up in a couple of places. Um, thank you for bringing your heart and soul to this recording. 
as you were writing the story, but I think you always do that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I feel like uh, the okie-finokie is quite specifically part of your heart and soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it goes with me everywhere. Did you have the story in mind before we talked to you about it? This story is here because I'm just so worried about the mind. Right. It's urgent. It. This one is urgent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This one needs all of us stepping up. Right. On fire. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Kyle, I've written about the swamp in a number of other places, mm-hmm. and I... I love a chance to write about it again. You know, it's like just revisiting an old friend. Yeah, because it's a friend in need right now. So much of my work has been trying to, like, give honor to this homeland of mine and and even go back because I think I see that it's hemorrhaging its artists. It's hemorrhaging its educated kids. It's hemorrhaging its best and brightest people. And that can only spell doom for the place. And yet, you know, I'll get letters from people who read me and thought, you know, like, oh my God, this place is written in my DNA. Right. It's in my blood and bones. Did you tell me earlier, maybe before we started recording, about a town that was didn't hold elections because they forgot to turn in the paperwork? I think worse is, you know, hospital no hospitals, no hospitals in an area. It's really lack of imagination. I wrote this about this in 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 the Wildcard Quilt, which was my second book, that Silas, my son Silas and I had moved back to my grandmother's farm in Appling County. And Silas didn't Silas was only maybe seven years old, but he didn't want to stay, you know, and I thought I'll drive to Savannah mm-hmm. for a soccer team if he if that's what it is or for art less like whatever this kid needs and and I was like so Silas what is it what is it and he said here there is no imagination so then Barry Lopez the great writer nature writer Barry Lopez said fundamentalism in any form is the sign of a failed imagination and that is what's happened to the Okefenokee mm-hmm it is that it's that a failed imagination in the form of fundamentalism um, bled off into the swamp because it's in the area surrounding the swamp. You know, one thing you say in the story is um, it's so common for our precious resources or resources. You know, Twin Minds is going after that mineral. Mm-hmm. And... It always seems to be impoverished where impoverished people live, or people, yeah. or or people with no power. Right. Why is that? It's almost always. Mm-hmm. It's definitely it's called resource paradox, and I can't say much about it except that I've just experienced it over, over and, and over. over. Right. Yeah. And in my case, it's a, a lot of pine lands that are owned by large companies Mm -hmm. and they just get clear cut Mm -hmm. over and over and over. Mm -hmm. But it's also agricultural lands. And and Kyle, what is so interesting is we think of rural Georgia and the rural South as being salt of the earth America. And yet it's really, we're full of industrialized landscapes. So a field growing a monocrop of corn sprayed with Roundup is an industrial landscape, right? you know, 
and I, I always come back to my like my one of my essential metaphors, of course, is capitalism and and my and, and just looking at what capitalism like the destruction that capitalism on all fronts has wrought. And I just I feel as if I'm living in a, a colonized country. I'm living in a colonized place. Kind of takes my breath away. Do you think the townspeople in Folkestone who won't say anything about the mine, do you think they're scared of something? And we, we talk about how much they love their home and they love the swamp and their swamp people, but do you think they're frightened by the power of this mine? I just think they don't want to go on record saying mm-hmm. anything that would destroy this place they love and they know they need jobs. You know, in one part of your story, you talked about um, that if something happened, then it would turn over to citizen enforcement. So, yeah, and that so so we're hoping that the Georgia EPD does the right thing and protects the swamp for the people for perpetuity. Um, If they don't, you know. If the governor doesn't step up and protect it, or if EPD doesn't, then the last resort, then what we have is citizen enforcement of the rules that we love this swamp. This swamp belongs to us. This swamp cannot be destroyed. We will not allow it to be destroyed. What does citizen enforcement look like? It would probably look like a lawsuit in this case. But it also, thank you for asking this question, Kyle, because it also looks like, you know, lots and lots of activism. Right. Lots and lots of letters, phone calls, jamming phone lines. On fire, as you said. Yeah. On fire. Yeah. It looks like flames shooting out of the heads of a lot of people. (laughs) That's a good picture. Has everyone listening got that picture in your head? Okay, getting back to the the putting that pressure on the EPD, are you saying that Brian Kemp could step up and do this in one fell swoop? Well, you know, I think that he could <laughs> lean on the EPD. He could send a little memo over. He uh-huh. could make a, just make a little phone call over there. Mm-hmm. Like, nope, not in the swamp. Mm-hmm. All right, we want to say that again? Yeah, not in the swamp. Not in the swamp. Not Okie Swamp. Yeah. <laughs> not there. Yeah. You know what I really love is uh, the way you have a reverse David and Goliath story. And the, the Goliath, Goliath is the swamp. Yeah. And all of us who love it. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, those of us who've come from it, who've lived in it, who've paddled through it, who've taken their children there. I wouldn't want to be Twin Pines Mm-mm. trying to take titanium dioxide from Trail Ridge. It's a losing battle. Mm-hmm. It is a losing battle. Why put, I don't, I just, I don't understand it. It's like, why put the resources there? Better find another place. As you know, Batch is a podcast where we have our favorites read our favorites stories, right? And um, in this batch of episodes, we're doing all environmental stories or stories having to do with this region we love and call home. And in almost every episode, we've talked about in order to protect the places we love, you have to experience them. Mm-hmm. And I love that Antoine decided to do, to do church outside. Mm-hmm. And, and when you were reading that, I was thinking, oh, outside's my church, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. 
people find themselves, I think, much more passionate about the cause if they've experienced it and they've seen, you know, experienced the beauty of of these places. Mm-hmm. When when that choir sang for Church on Fire, you know that choir that choir is phenomenal. The composer Walter Parks uses swamp hollers. So I didn't get this in the article. Swamp hollering was a way that the old swampers, the inhabitants, um, you know, they might be walk, they might be paddling their boat to an island in the middle of the swamp where they lived. But, you know, even a couple of miles away, they would begin to holler to let their family know they were coming. Oh my God, I love that. And all the families had a different holler. So the so the person's hollers were distinguishable. And it took a tremendous amount of lung capacity and force to, to be, do this. To be a hollerer. Mm-hmm. Can you do a swamp a swamp holler? I can't do it. Mm-hmm. I I mean, yeah. what does it sound like? It would be just like um a word that was re- like suki. You know, oh, like wow. like a word that's uh-huh. really loud, really projected, but and very it's spe- your, yeah, specific to your family. Right. I took my children when they were little on a canoe trip through the Okefenokee, not three days across the entire thing. I want to do that. But took Will and Henry, and, and I was like, one tip of this boat, and we're swimming with the alligators. Mm. It's a little, it's amazing. Yeah, I was a little unnerved by it myself. <laughs> I was like, I, boys, be be real still. <laughs> I did a crazy thing. And I, w- I was crossing it with my son. Mm-hmm. He was 14 and mm-hmm. some of his friends, and there were a few other adults. But the kid in my boat, um, he asked me if he could have this Gatorade to drink. And I said, Zach, you can have anything you want to eat or drink in this boat. So a minute later, I heard him gagging, and he had picked up a Gatorade bottle that I had filled with lamp oil. Oh, no. Yes. So this this is an essay that's in Wild Spectacle, the, the book of essays, Wild Spectacle. But I had to, I had to haul him back out to say, you know, to for emergency help, and then turn back around and get back catch back up with my party. So, yeah, I got him back to his dad, and then I turned around. And, and which, hauled ass through the swamp. At <laughs> night, by myself, in a kayak, which is, you know, a kayak know, is just rolling at right. surface level. Right. And when, you sh- when I would shine my flashlight, there was just like red eyes everywhere. It was... <laughs> It was a very humbling experience, I'll say. Amazing. You're I would want my kids to go on a canoe trip with you. You sound like the, through the dark. Yeah. Well okay, a, a responsible mom. Oh my gosh. So did y'all camp? Mm-hmm. Uh, on those platforms above yeah. the water, yeah. What's that like? Are the alligators close? Mm-hmm. They're close. To the platforms? Yeah, but they're yeah, just chilling. They're chilling. Yeah. But it's Really, it is you. You don't want to go in July or August because you can't swim really with them. You know, I'm sure there are people who do, but I wouldn't. I would. Wait, so, wait, wait! Stop in the name of love. People swim with the alligators. I'm sure they do, but I wouldn't get off that platform and swim. No. I wouldn't get out of my boat and swim. No. So you're kind of confined to the platform or to the saying. boat okay. for a long way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But 
this thing happens to you. This happened to me one time, and I just didn't believe it, which is I spent a few days in the Okefenokee, and when I got out, it was like the swamp, the landscapes of the swamp were actually imprinted somewhere in the retina of my eyes or something. Like everywhere I looked, I, like I literally could see the swamp. Just like looking around this studio, I could see the swamp. It was imprinted in there. Wow. It took it took about a week for it to all fade out. I've never had that happen. Have you written about that? I don't know. That sounds a little too weird to write about. <laughs> I don't think that stops you. <laughs> I hope that's a compliment. Uh, well, it is it is a one hundred percent a compliment. Before we go, I want you to share with everyone. If someone hasn't read Janice Ray, good Lord, you need to. But if they haven't, what would you recommend they start with? I think start with my the book I started with, which is Ecology of a Cracker Childhood. That came out in 99. And um, there, I actually do talk about the swamp a little bit in that book. Mm-hmm. And if you want to read more about the swamp itself, there is a chapter in Wild Spectacle, which is a book that came out. Uh, in, last fall from Trinity University Press, and there is an entire essay in there called I Have Seen the Warrior right. about the Okefenokee. I've just started that book. I haven't oh, gotten to that essay yet. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And then just for fun, I want to throw in that I have a new novella called The Woods of Fannin County. I've heard. So, I've heard all about it. A novella based on a story, a true story. So, yeah, check that out. Cannot wait. Thank you. Well, Janice, I just cannot tell you how much we appreciate you being part of anything the Bitter Southerner does, but this story as part of this this group of environmental stories we're working on for this fall. Anyway, thank you so much. I hope we'll um, get to talk again soon and more stories for the Bitter Southerner. We're going to work on this uh, Okefenokee thing hard right now, though. Okay. On thank- fire on fire. Thank you so much for having me, Kyle. And thanks to Ryan for all, both of all your hard work. Thank, thank you both very thank much. You. Thank you so much. Okay. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Okay. Did I just dream that? Did Janice Ray just walk into the studio and read for the Bitter Southerner? Yes. Yes, she did. Are you on fire to protect the Okefenokee? Yes. Yes, you are. Thank you, Janice. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Our producer today and every day is Ryan Engelberger. The theme music for Batch was written, performed, and recorded by Kirk Castle. This episode was recorded at Standard Electric Recorders in Scottsdale, Georgia. This entire second batch of episodes is being made possible by the generous support of the Southern Environmental Law Center. I'm your host, Kyle Tibbs-Jones, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Batch. Until then, Team Better Southerner will be sharing stories, hoping for, and working on a better South and a better world. P.S. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe, follow, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and if you really, really loved it, leave us a review. A nice review really, really helps. Thanks, y'all.